Okay, if you guys could find your seat, that would be wonderful. And uh, if you could open up a Bible to the Old Testament book of Jonah. Um, Jonah's a very small book. It's really difficult or easy to miss, rather. Uh, If you go a little bit past Amos and I think Obadiah, um, you're in the Daniel and Hosea area. If you need to look at your table of contents, there is no shame in that. And if you don't have a Bible, there's some on the back table over there. We'd love for you to grab one and open it up and leave it open in front of you. Uh, And if you don't own a Bible, as always, we want you to take one of those home with you as our gift to you. We want everybody to have a Bible. I'm just going to pray for us as we go into Jonah chapter 1 together uh, this afternoon. So join me. God, we love you and we thank you that you are a God who speaks, that you are a God who's revealed yourself to us. And we believe that your word is alive and active and your word does the work. And so tonight, Lord, we just pray that you would speak to us whatever it is that you want us to hear and to believe and to correct in our lives from the book of Jonah. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this opportunity to be together under your word. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so we are starting a new four-week series in the book of this book of Jonah, this incredible little book. Um, And I've titled this first message in honor of my friend and your um, five-star associate pastor, who was not able to be here tonight, uh, a little under the weather, Mike Dahl, because Mike Dahl is a dedicated Seattle Mariners baseball fan. So if you didn't know, uh, the Seattle Mariners hold the title for the current longest postseason drought in North American professional sports, okay? Uh, It has been 20 years since the Mariners have made it to the playoffs. That's rough, you guys. Even if you don't like sports, that's rough. But this year is looking up. And if there is any foreshadowing at all that this could finally be the year, it's Jonah chapter 1. Because in this chapter, we see Mariners, real Mariners, whose lives are endangered and God saves them. Okay, so in honor of Mike, I have titled this message, God Saves the Mariners, also mainly because nobody cares about my sermon titles, you know, so I can just throw these things away, call them what I want, and we're all happy, okay? Uh, But first off, before we dive into the text uh, today, we need to know some things about the book of Jonah and its setting. Um, if, If people know anything about Jonah, they know it has something to do about a whale who swallows up Jonah. And a lot of people get hung up right there. Um, Some people want to write off this story as um, just a fictitious story or a parable of some kind. And and I understand that sort of reasoning, but I think the problem with that, though, is that here in the book of Jonah, we see names, we see dates, we see details. It's written in the genre of history, actually. So just look in verse 1, for example. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. So it doesn't say, once upon a time, there was a man named Jonah. It doesn't say that, which is what our modern-day writers would say if they're signaling to you we have a fictitious story. And ancient literature had the same sort of idea to it. But it says, Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now we learn even in the book of 2 Kings that Jonah, son of Amittai, was a historical person who did other historical things things. But I even think another more clarifying thing is that Jesus thought of this story as actual history. I mean, he referred to the historical events of Jonah 
uh, a couple different times, like in Matthew 12 and Luke 11, and he viewed this story and what happens in this book as very important uh, as a sign of his own ministry in life, primarily a sign of his death, burial, and resurrection. And, and I kind of feel like Jesus would know, right? And so just with that being said, um, this book, although it's a, it's a wonderful, beautiful, complex book, and it's portioned out as a part of prophetic literature, but it reads completely unlike all the other minor prophets. Uh, it reads um, like history, right? But also, Jonah's prophecy is just a five-word sentence in Hebrew, and it doesn't even appear until chapter three, and that's it. Right, so just a five-word sentence of prophecy that appears in chapter 3, and that's it. So all in all, this book is really about Jonah. It's really about God's running prophet. And I hope that you will see as we walk through this the next four weeks is that this is not a story about a big magical fish. It's a story about God. In short, the message of Jonah is this. It's on the screen for you. God saves. God saves. God saves the mariners. God saves the Assyrians. God even saves Jonah. And that saving grace is for you too. And when that grace, that saving grace gets a hold of your life, it'll change you. So I'm kind of curious who you're going to resonate with in this story. Like any story that you read, you kind of gravitate towards a character and you kind of lock onto them. You resonate with them. And sometimes those characters shift and you latch onto somebody else. But if you were an Israelite, if you were a Jewish person in this day, this was their prophet, right? This is their history. Jonah is their representative figure. So when they would read this book, it was designed for them to resonate with Jonah. And I wonder if you will too. So let's dive into Jonah. Pun definitely intended there, okay? I am a dad. Um, let's dive into Jonah. And uh, this is what I want us to see. It was just on the screen for you, but we're going to follow the narrative plot, right? The setting, the initial conflict, the rising action, and the climax. We have the runner, the storm, and the savior. We're going to read as we go. So let's look first at this runner, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So he is supposed to go to Nineveh. Right? Nineveh is the destination that God has called him to. Nineveh is uh, modern-day Mosul, Iraq. It was the capital of Assyria during the time that Jonah is prophesying. And um, suffice to say, Nineveh and Israel were not friends. They were not friends. Um, I, don't, I think this will be on the screen for you, but there's actually, yeah, there it is, um, a limestone artifact in a British museum in London um, depicting Jehu, the king of Israel, bowing and kissing the earth at the feet of the king of Assyria. Okay, so this is in limestone. Okay, so if your leader is carved in limestone, kissing the ground of your enemies, that's going to sit with you a certain way, right? So this is Nineveh, 
This is Israel. This is their relationship. And we are told that Nineveh was a very great and wicked city because what does it say? That great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. So first of all, God calls Nineveh a great city, meaning it was huge. It was massive. Jonah says that it took three days to walk from one side of the city to the other. Historians tell us that its walls were so wide that you could ride three chariots across, which I've never been in a chariot, but I imagine that wall is pretty wide, right? They had this big, massive architecture. They had wonderful um, culture and singers. It was an attraction sort of place to be. So it was a great city. But we're also told that it was an extremely wicked city. The Ninevites were known as some of the cruelest people on the face of the planet. They even took a lot of pride in how cruel they were. Um, Just to give you a picture, I think it's important not to make you squirm, but I think it's important. Uh, When they would conquer another city, they would skin alive a lot of the people, especially the conquered nation's leaders, and spread their skins out over the city walls. Then they would bury these people while they were still alive up to their head. And they would often take their tongues out and drive a stake through them so that they would languish in pain and die of thirst. They would often cut their enemies' limbs off and leave one arm so that Assyrians could walk by and shake their hand and mock them as they died. And I've heard that they made them listen to the band U2 on repeat over and over and over again. Um, uh, Oh, that's not part of it. Never mind. Okay, made that last part up. But it was unspeakably brutal. Okay. Okay. I could go on and on. It was really rough to read about it. It's even rougher to talk about it. You get the picture, okay? These aren't nice people, right? This isn't like New York City, a place that some people love and some people hate, right? Brutal people. God says in verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So what is Jonah going to do? What's God going to do? Well, he calls him to go east, And Jonah runs west. Here begins Jonah's rebellion against God. He's a runner. God clearly told him to go, and he ran the other way. Not just a little ways. He didn't just go outside the city walls or something. He ran 2,500 miles away uh, from Nineveh. Um, If my math is correct, that's the distance between here and Pittsburgh. Okay, Um, that's that's a long ways. Tarshish in the ancient mind was even thought to be at the end of the earth. It was the end of the known world. I mean, this would be like God telling you to leave here and go to North Korea and you packed your things and went to Maui or something like that, right? That's how far away it is. We'd understand why you went to Maui, but but that's how far the distance is. So he goes down to this little marine town in Joppa and he pays a fare to get on a boat And it's actually just a side here, an interesting thing, because Joppa is also the place that God gave a vision to Peter to go and tell Cornelius the gospel, and the gospel went to the Gentiles. So this little place, Joppa, has been significant in the gospel going to the Gentiles. So if you think about it, this place has been significant even in you hearing the gospel. So notice how quickly Jonah's life is changing. There's like all this buzz and activity to his life. He was just going about his ordinary life, his ordinary ministry, and the next minute he was gathering his life savings. He's down at the docks of Joppa feverishly asking, you know, is there a boat going out tonight that I can get on? So Jonah is upstanding in every way. He's a godly man. He's a prophet. The book of 2 Kings tells us that Jonah was one of Israel's premier prophets 
He had a successful ministry during one of Israel's finest hours. He was like the Charles Spurgeon or the J.I. Packer of his day. You could think of it that way. But Jonah, the prophet, God's guy, we're told twice, runs away, not from Nineveh, but from the presence of the Lord. Right? Twice. He's running from the face of God is what it literally says. Well, why would he run? I mean, do you think he's just scared of Nineveh based upon the things I've told you? I mean, that's probably why I would run, right? And we wouldn't blame him if he did. I mean, him going to Nineveh and giving a word of judgment against them, the only modern-day equivalent that we would have is maybe a Jewish rabbi showing up in Berlin in 1941 and calling out a rebuke against the Reich. Right? Chances of death are high. But is that why he runs? Well, not at all. It's a short book, so just look over to chapter 4, verse 2. He tells you why he runs. Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Why? For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So Jonah is not worried about what Nineveh is going to do to him. He is worried about what God is going to do to Nineveh. And so he runs. He runs from God because he knows who God is. He's a runner. He is rebelling. I know when we think of that idea of rebellion, we think of um, a lot of fierce energy. I'm a rebel, right? You know, there's a lot of strength to that idea. We, we have a hard time at times calling ourselves rebels or that we are in a rebellion against God. That seems like too strong of a word, but rebellion is simply saying no to God. That's all rebellion is. It's just saying no to God. It's God saying, I want you to do this, and you saying no. Right? We, we tend in our lives to evaluate our relationship with God by merely just comparing who we are to other people. So you might even look around a church and you go, well, I go to church way more often than that person does, right? Or I heard that person's story or I've heard about what's been going on in their life and so I don't do that, so I, I'm not as bad as that person, right? I, I give more money, I think, right? You know, I'm pretty generous, so, so this is how I evaluate my relationship with God. But lordship is one of those things that if it's not absolute, it's not real, I'll never forget when we were down in Corvallis, um, there was this guy who showed up to our church from the East Coast. He wasn't even a college student. He just moved out to the area randomly. And uh, he, was a ma- he was a pretty big skeptic. I don't know why he came to our church, but he did. And you couldn't miss him. He had these long dreadlocks and this kind of thing. But over the course of time, this guy moved from a skeptic to a believer. And I'll never forget what he said. Um, in his testimony when we baptized him. He said, I believed I could pick and choose which parts of my life to share with God. That's how he saw his relationship with God. I can just pick and choose which parts of my life that I share with God. This part, I'll share with you, God. This part, that's mine. This part, have at it. This part, off limits. And, And that's so helpful because we see, we understand that picking and choosing is running. That's what it is. See, guys, we're never farther from God than when we think we're close to him and we say no. 
Right? We're never farther from God when we think we're close to him and we say, no. Are you walking with God in every sort of way in your life that matters to you, but there's some area in your life that you're just like, no, nah, that. We're not even talking about that. I mean, the moment that you say no to God, you're a runner. You're a runner. I mean, when did Jonah start running? When the boat left the harbor? No, it's when God said to him, rise and go to Tarshish, and he rose and fled. He began running when he rose. So my question to you is, are you a runner tonight? Why are you running? We have a storm. Let's look in verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. We'll stop there. So the Lord hurls a great wind upon the sea. The word here is, is actually used to describe someone throwing a weapon. This word hurl. So you see the problem with running from God, and Jonah's figuring that out here, is that God is already where you're going. This was our call to worship even tonight from the Psalms. Jonah's running is this exercise in futility, right? He can't run from God, but he buries himself in a ship, but God finds him there too. He's going to go into the belly of a fish, but God finds him there too. So, So here's the situation that we're seeing in these verses. We have all these pagan mariners. They're scared out of their minds, and they're like, all right, everybody pray to their God. Maybe God will answer the phone and get us out of this mess. Maybe he'll be in a good enough mood and, and we'll all be okay. So everybody call your gods, right? Pray to your gods and look at what Jonah's doing. This is interesting. He's taking a nap. I mean, how ironic is this? They're, these pagans are up there having a theological discussion about what's going on and why. And there's a prophet of God who's been giving a message that is fast asleep downstairs. Well, what's going on? Well, there's this play on words that's happening here that we need to see. This is uh, beautiful. Uh, Jonah does this often, actually. You see this word down, right? Jonah is full of stuff like this. The word down is being repeated. Look in verse 3. Jonah went down to Joppa, right? Then look down in verse 5. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, And then he sleeps, but the word sleep in Hebrew is a word for deep sleep. This isn't like dozing. This is not what you do during a sermon or something like that, right? This is a deep sleep. This is the word used for when Adam fell asleep and somehow got a rib ripped out of him and he didn't even wake up to it, right? That kind of deep sleep down in the inner part. He's down to Joppa, down to the inner part of the ship, down into sleep. It's communicating the depth of his running. So you're getting this downward progression, and it starts small, And it ends up in a total spiritual disaster. And that's exactly what happens in our lives too. It's like that when you go out to the ocean and you go swimming in the ocean or you body surf or um, you're just playing in the ocean and all of a sudden after a little while you, you look at the shore and all of your stuff, right? Your beach chairs, your towels, your the people you're with, they're all like way down the beach. You just slowly and surely like got swept away down the beach. It's like that. And look what happens in verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. 
And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? That's a lot of questions. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the, man, the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. How do they know that? Because he had told them. So Jonah knows what he's doing. But notice something very important here. Our running, our saying no to God affects other people. Right? We never sin in private. We never run alone. I mean, maybe for some of you, your family or your friends or your marriage is suffering because you're running. And you believe the lie that just says, this is me and God thing. It's just negatively affecting me, but we'll figure it out. All the while, it's negatively affecting all those people around you. You need God to open your eyes to see that your running is affecting those around you. It's like when you're standing at a peaceful pond and you throw a rock into the lake, there's always the ripple effect, isn't there? We know this, we believe this. You know, you're standing there by the shore and it's calm, but a speedboat tears through and they're just loving their life, doing their own thing, but now you're affected by all the waves of that, right? This is what our, our sin does, what our running does. See, the greatest gift that you can give anyone in your life, your parent, your sibling, your, your spouse, your kids, your coworkers, your roommates, your neighbors, the greatest thing you could ever give people in your life is being close to God. It's abiding in Him. The great yet died before his 30s, Robert Murray McShane said, one of my most foundational quotes that I cling to, he said, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. That's what my people need. It's my holiness. It's not just my mere words. It's not my mere decision-making. It's not my your material provision or something like that. It's my holiness. It's my being close to God. That's the guys, the greatest gift you can give anybody is your yes to God. It's when God says something to you and you say, yes, I'll say yes. So just catch the idea here. Jonah is hoping his running affects Nineveh in a bad way, right? But Jonah's running not only affects him, it's affecting every single person caught in his path. But look what happens in verse 11. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. This is getting worse and worse. He said to them, pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will be quiet for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, and they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you." So kudos to the sailors, right? They find out Jonah is their cause of near death and they still don't want Jonah to die. 
But now they're in this rowing contest with God, and you can almost see it, right? Just picture one of those great blockbuster movies of the 90s and all the movies they made about sea, you know, craziness. Just trying to row back to Joppa, and God just has his, like, pinky on the steer. Just give up, right? It's just getting worse and worse, harder and harder. But like we've seen, this storm isn't primarily for the mariners, although it leads to their salvation. This storm was for Jonah. So he says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Verse 12, there was nothing left for him now. He was no longer sure, even if he was a true servant of God. I mean, remember they asked him what his occupation was? That was the only question he didn't answer. It was the only one. I kind of wonder if Jonah is no longer sure that he's really even a child of God anymore. Why? And we get this, right? We get this. Right? If there is no obedience in our life, if we're doing whatever we want and we know we're saying no to God, we do not have assurance. It doesn't make sense to us, does it? Because the assurance that God provides for us of our salvation is being a changed person. So here is Jonah. He's giving up. He's surrendering He's wiped the goobers out of his eyes from his deep rest. He's waking up. He's done running. And in his giving up, he just says, kill me. I'm done. But God is not out to kill Jonah. He's out to save Jonah. Do you see this storm? It's a lot like those storms in your life. Things come into our lives that we don't want things that are hard and things that are painful. I mean, just think over the last three years, all this stuff that we've walked through. And man, I've prayed and I've fought for us to see all of these things, not as the punishment of God, but the providence of God in our lives. This storm in your life, it's not there to pay you back for your sin. It's there to bring you back from your sin. It's to cause you to stop running. This storm is not designed to be retribution to Jonah. It's designed to be restoration for Jonah. I think many of us don't think of our storms this way, though, but there really are two different ways to see a storm. Like if you're a farmer, you're in famine, here comes a storm, you're happy, right? You're a sailor, you're a mariner on the sea, you're not so happy. I could put you a different way. I mean, think about like a goodwill store, right? If you're a goodwill store, a hoarder and a minimalist see a goodwill store very differently, don't they? A minimalist is like, yes, take my stuff. A hoarder is like, yes, let me bring more stuff into my life. Right? As a college student, same thing. I would go there, buy all my clothes, right? Because I'm like, yeah, it's cheap and random, you know? Just wear their T-shirts. And I'm walking around town, and people are like, you went to such and such high school? I'm like, not at all. Found it at Goodwill. You know? But now as an adult, I'm just trying to offload all my stuff there, right? It's the same thing. You can see it two different ways. Right? We can either see the storms in our lives as punishment or a means of salvation. And that's where we end. That's what's happening. We're supposed to see the Savior here. Look in verse 15. So they picked up Jonah. They hurled him into the sea. There's that word again. It's three times, I think. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights 
So Jonah surrenders his life. Don't minimize this. His life is hurled into the sea and the storm ceases. Jonah's life saves the mariners. And what do they do? They repent and they worship the one true God. They stop worshiping their other gods, the ones that they called out to originally that didn't help them. And look in verse 6, it says, perhaps the God will give a thought to us. And now in verse 14 and beyond, they're using this covenant name for God. It says they fear the Lord and they make sacrifices to him. They are converted. In their own way, they've stopped running too. And Jonah, whom they perceive in verse 14 as an innocent man, at least from Jonah's perspective and from theirs, He's giving up his own life for them. But Jonah is an anti-type, right? He's the bad guy in the story, the instigator of the rising action. But somehow he's the savior. In his surrender, the storm ceases. I mean, it's important to know this. In in the Bible, when you're reading the Bible, there are types and there are anti-types in the Bible. So, In other words, there are types. You read a story in the Bible, you see someone do something or say something, and you think to yourself, that's kind of like Jesus, right? Kind of like the Luke 24 stuff we looked at. And there's anti-types. People you see do things or say things, and you're like, that's the exact opposite of Jesus. And it makes you grow with this respect and appreciation for him. Jonah is the anti-type, right? He's deficient in all the ways that Jesus is not. And so the book of Jonah is showing you then who the real Savior is. There's, a, there's actually a big contrast. We're just setting up the rest of this book for the next few weeks, right? There's a contrast being set up now between how Jonah feels about the Ninevites and how God feels about the Ninevites. Jonah wants to see them destroyed. God wants to see them repent and forgiven. Jonah is actually giving you and me a picture of the real Savior who is going to come for the Ninevites, right? Do you remember Matthew chapter 12? where Jesus says that he is a prophet like Jonah. He says that his death and resurrection were going to fulfill a sign given through Jonah. What does that look like here? Well, Jonah was cast into the sea, and it became calm. He was swallowed by a fish, and it took him down into the depths of the sea for three days, and later he's going to be brought back to the land of the living. When we read the Gospels, we see Jesus cast into the ocean of God's wrath on the cross. In the great tempest and righteous anger of God against our sin was satisfied, and it became calm. Then Jesus is placed into the heart of the earth for three days, like Jonah, and then resurrected. The difference, of course, was that Jonah went through all of this involuntarily because of his disobedience. But Jesus went through it all because of our disobedience, our running. See, Jesus did everything right that Jonah did wrong. Jesus is the, the true Jonah, you could say. He's the he's 
way better at being Jonah than Jonah is at being Jonah because Jonah ran from his enemies, yet Jesus ran towards his enemies. Jonah was on a mission of revenge because he hated the Ninevites, but Jesus came on a mission of rescue because he loved the world. Jonah was all about his own self-protection, but Jesus poured out his life in self-sacrifice. I mean, this is why when, when you think and I think or you hear others say the God of the Bible is just so judgmental, I mean, how could he dare punish people for their sin, right? That's not loving. But the moment that you and I even get a taste of evil against us, we cry out for vengeance. We cry out for punishment. But what we actually fail to understand is that all of our sin is to God what Nineveh's sin was to Jonah, He was repulsed by their sin. Just think about how God feels about ours. Our sin crucified Jesus. Nineveh's sin against God was great and it was gross and it was heavy to even mention a few sentences to you. But my goodness, you guys, we should feel the grossness and weight of our sin against God. And when I say that, I'm, I'm not trying to say Make it worse than it is. We're just trying to catch up to how bad it is. I figured maybe this was fitting. I don't know. I might regret this illustration here. But um, I thought this was fitting because it's Mother's Day. But I'll never forget all my kids when they were little in diapers. Every parent's experienced this. Your kid comes to you at some point and they're holding out their hand and they just stuck their hand down their diaper when they went to the bathroom. And they're kind of grossed out, but they don't really know what they're going through. And you see it as a parent, and in that moment, you are grossed out, right? And you are trying to think, I want this child to understand how gross this is, but you're not trying to make them feel worse than it is. You're just trying to let them see how bad it is in the moment, right? Right, This is how this stuff works in our lives. We want to see clearly how gross things are. We want them to catch up with us. And I am like my kids. I mean, I was a kid. I imagine my mom would stand here today and say, I did the same thing. I don't see, though, my sin for what it is. I am Jonah, right? I am a runner. But I must also see that I am Nineveh. And when you see that, change becomes possible. You can actually begin to receive grace in your life. See, What God wants is for his people to have a heart like his, a heart that overflows with grace and compassion. What you're going to see in Jonah is that there are actually three possible responses that you can have to God's word. There could be disobedience, right? Flat out disobedience where you just hear God say, do this and you say no. There can be a dutiful obedience. We see this in Jonah's chapter three and four where Jonah follows through on what God's called him and asked him to do. But yet, even as he's done this, he's not happy about it. But there's also a gospel-transformed obedience where you act like God acts because you love like God loves, because you have experienced the extravagant grace that has just begun to permeate your life. You know that you were a runner, and he chased you down. I mean, the only way that you can develop this sort of alignment with God is through that deep experience of God's grace in your life. And it's the most wonderful thing in the world to me. 
I mean, over the years, it's literally the highlight. If you say, what's the highlight of being a pastor? It's me seeing people not just go from like crazy sin to um, radical transformation. Those actually are my favorite stories. My favorite stories are the people that I've watched that have grown up and kept their noses clean. But then one day something happens, the penny drops, and they begin to get it. Their lives are radically changed because they know that their standing before God is no longer based upon what they've done in their life. It's just merely the merits of grace given to them in Jesus Christ. I've watched, I mean, I could just name person after person who've experienced this. They are visibly different. They become humble. They become grateful. They become merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so here's the secret. The very thing that you think determines your standing before God is the very thing that you and I are going to judge other people by. If I think my merit before God is based on this, that's what I'm going to judge you by. If you think it's your performance, then you'll judge others by their performance. But if you think it's grace, you'll translate that too. See, grace is offensive to the self-made man. I think if you want to know if you believe in the grace of God, not in a Jonah way, but in a mariner way, you'll see grace present in your relationships with other people. See, Jonah knew about the grace of God. That's why he ran. He knew it, but it hadn't shaped his heart. God's grace had a reach to it, and that reach ended before it could touch his enemies. But we are told that while you and I were enemies, God's enemies, Jesus ran towards us. And his arm didn't stop short at the cross. He went all the way. There's a song by City of Light. I think it's actually a kid's song. I keep begging Warren to sing it. Um, but it's good for adults, let me tell you. It's simple. The verses just say this. Jesus said, if I thirst, I should come to him. No one else can satisfy. I should come to him. Jesus said, if I am weak, I should come to him. No one else can be my strength. I should come to him. Jesus said that if I fear, I should come to him. No one else can be my shield. I should come to him. And then verse 4. Jesus said if I am lost, he will come to me. And he showed me on that cross. He has come for me. My plea with you is simple. I want to invite you tonight to stop running. You can't run from God. He's been with you all along and you're running. So come home. Come home. You might feel like you're Jonah. You might feel like you're the mariners, you might feel like you're Nineveh, but all are invited.
because God is a gracious God. And Jonah knew it, but he wasn't shaped by it. But God is not done with Jonah yet, and he is not done with you. Let's pray. Father, I do pray tonight that you would reveal to us maybe how we've run from you in our lives. Maybe ways that we're running from you now, ways that we're saying no. God, would you reveal that to us? And even if it's painful, help us to say yes to you. God, we thank you for Jonah. I pray that we'd resonate with him. Lord, I pray that we would see Jesus and see all that he went through so that we could be saved, so that we could be in a room like this tonight and even care about these things, to even have a glimmer of hope in our lives. We thank you for Jesus. And Lord, we pray now as we go into this time of response that as we take these elements, the bread and the cup, as they're broken before our eyes, I pray that this gospel would be made visible, that we would cherish Jesus all the more for being cast into the sea of your righteous judgment against our running. That we could experience the calm of your presence in our lives. I pray these things in his name. Amen.